Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we can't meet physically, uh, we can meet through other means. And uh, Lord God, I pray as I speak, um, as hopefully I speak uh, words put on my heart by the Holy Spirit, uh, that Lord God, you will uh, cause um, what is said to be helpful and encouraging um, and that you would build your church through it. God, I pray that you'll open the ears um, and the minds of all those that are listening. Uh, Lord God, we pray that uh, you just overcome any technical difficulties um, and that, Lord God, that this would be a worthwhile exercise. Lord God, we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Excellent. Okay. So, um, the country of Morocco lies in the uh, north uh, west of the continent of Africa. I don't know where you've ever been there, um, but it borders uh, two seas. It borders the, uh, the wild Atlantic Ocean um, and the, the more sheltered uh, Mediterranean Sea. And on the, uh, on the western coast of Morocco, at a similar latitude to Marrakesh, uh, a very famous sort of tourist attraction, uh, lies my own favourite town of uh, the port of Essawaria. Um, it's uh, sort of fairly uh, small, all things considered, um, though it has uh, the growing uh, tourist industry there. Um, in, in particular, it's very much a working port. It has this uh, thriving uh, fishing industry and there's this army of uh, blue ships that are in the harbour um, and they go out and they bring in this vast array of sea life that you can uh, sort of uh, buy in the market afterwards. Um, and uh, on top of that, there's this strong um, Elysee trade wind that sort of runs along the coast and it's uh, a very sacred site for cake surfers because it's excellent uh, uh, to catch winds and uh, pick up great speeds along the, uh, 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 the long coast. Um, Meanwhile, if you go into the town itself, it is just full of activity. There are some really good street vendors there selling almost everything imaginable. Um, and there are these uh, sugared fried dough rings. I don't call them donuts because I don't think that doesn't dust it. They're these uh, rings of dough covered in sugar and soaked in uh, uh, fat. And they're the, uh, they're, they're the best uh, uh, fried delicacy I've ever enjoyed. Um, and, it, and it's a great place to uh, uh, look at and wander around and, and soak up the atmosphere um, and it's like almost every harbour I don't know if you've been to various different harbours but um, almost each and every harbour around the world is a fascinating to, place to visit it's, it's so engaging there's so much going on um, and uh, often you, you find people whose livelihoods are beyond the sort of service industries uh, and, and it's really uh, engaging um, overhead you'll have the uh, haunting scavenger gulls sort of looking out for uh, sort of loose morsels to devour. You have this uh, this salty air, you know, it's, uh, we have some type of air in the uh, inland and uh, uh, but out on the coast it's that salty invigorating air. Uh, very much reminds me a lot of Victorians sending uh, out ill people to the coast to uh, 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 recuperate there. There's this uh, urgent commercial activity you know it's not just about tourists it's about um, actually sort of bringing in the fish and uh, uh, getting them out to the various restaurants that they're sold in and there is this dependency on the uh, whimsy of the elements you know uh, some days the the sea can be calm and still and sometimes it can be uh, like a torrid uh, a 
there. Sometimes uh, the, the wing can be up and sometimes it can be down. Sometimes uh, the rain can lash against your home and sometimes it can be beautiful. Um, and, and so there's something enchanting, I think, about harbours and uh, uh, ports and it's uh, uh, somewhere really uh, uh, exhilarating. Um, and it'll always be for me something alluring, that sort of interface of land and sea. The sea where everything from sort of Jaws and Moby Dick uh, 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 live to the land where uh, things are a lot more under uh, control. And, and you have men and women trying to straddle those two worlds, trying to live uh, in that place uh, between uh, uh, the unpredictability of the sea to the safety uh, um, of the land, but, but where they can't just sort of uh, 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 catch things like they do. Um, and uh, in today's story, um, in Acts, hopefully you're going, reading with me uh, uh, through the book of Acts, we find ourselves in the port of Miletus. Um, it was a, it was a harbour, it was a port. Um, it teemed just like um, Essawara does uh, with industry and noise and life. Um, and uh, it was uh, sort of known as, uh, as somewhere uh, where, where boats came and went. There were lots of uh, uh, woolen goods that it was famous for. Um, and it was actually home of some really great Greek thinkers. I wonder whether the sea air uh, uh, excited the senses to come up with great uh, uh, philosophies. And uh, so today we find Paul has stopped in this port of Miletus for a moment. And it is steeped uh, in history and success. It is a, a famous place to go to. Um, and he is accompanied by friends. Um, and just before this moment, he's done like this preaching tour of uh, Macedonia and uh, Greece. Um, and so as he's ended that preaching period, he's uh, uh, gone up to Philippi um, and he's enjoyed Passover there with believers. Um, and then he moved from Philippi to Troas. I really uh, like this uh, story in Troas where, you know, Paul is so intense that he has to tell these guys at Troas all the things they need to know about Jesus. And he's preaching and preaching. And uh, in one window, there's a, there's a guy. Uh, and uh, just as Paul goes on and on, he's lulled into a sleep. And uh, as he falls asleep, he nods off uh, and falls uh, a few stories down, dead. And uh, then Paul sort of comes up and says, no, he's, he's fine, and raises him to life and, and gets back to preaching after raising someone to life uh, to, the, uh, to the morning. And it's just this incredible uh, juxtaposition of something very familiar uh, to preachers around the world of people sort of uh, uh, falling asleep. You know, it's the one moment perhaps in the week where everything stands still and despite their best intentions to love Jesus, uh, um, they uh, they nod off and then sort of Paul brings the Holy Spirit there and raises this guy to life. Um, and so uh, Paul always surrounded by drama and intrigue um, and the supernatural. He moves from Troas um, and he joins a, a boat where our writer of uh, Luke and Acts is, Luke, um, and uh, he wants to really get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. So we know that from Passover to Pentecost, 49 days, and uh, uh, we've been going through this book of Acts in 49 days. And so he really wants to get to Jerusalem to celebrate with the believers there um, the day of Pentecost. However, he knows it's important to stop off at the port of Miletus. He has 
unfinished business and it's there we're going to look at. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 20. So it says this in Acts chapter 20. From Miletus, uh, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race, uh, may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul wants to head to Jerusalem. He wants to see uh, his old friends again. He wants to go back to uh, this city that is kind of like the cradle of the church. Um, and he, um, uh, but as he on on this movement to it, he also has this competing desire to serve the church around. And, and in particularly, it seems that the Lord's put on his heart. Ephesus and so amidst the cries of the gulls and the stench of the fish uh, amidst the uh, deep fried sugary dough rings of the street fenders uh, Paul calls the leaders to him um, of the uh, Christian community in the uh, city of Ephesus um, which is a town 30 miles north and he says come to me I have something to share I have something to say uh, he obviously had a lot of clout because uh, a whole gang came to him rather than him going to them and um, barely have they been brought into his company than the apostle uh, launches into a defence of his faith. And uh, it's not necessarily the first thing that you would expect sort of a teaching conference uh, to start off with. But he wants to tell them why they can trust him, why his words are authentic. Um, and so it seems, and, and we're given this picture of a man that is beset by people that are critical of him, that uh, flood Twitter and Facebook and social media with criticisms of his approach, of how he lives his life and uh, the way he teaches and what he teaches. Um, and so he, he, he feels necessary to defend himself. Um, and for three years, Paul had served Jesus in Ephesus. And he demands that these Ephesians remember not what they have uh, read in sort of uh, uh, critical posts um, around, but to remember what they'd seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. Despite being attacked by antagonistic Jews who did not like sort of the freedom of the gospel that Paul was uh, preaching. Uh, Paul says, I retained a humility. I retained a, uh, a, a degree of uh, um, care for others, even at my own 
cost. If you remember last week, um, we looked at how Peter spoke at the Council of Jerusalem. Um, and he spoke of, uh, you know, Jesus' desire uh, for the Gentiles to have this light and easy yoke. And that light and easy yoke was because Jesus is humble and gentle. And so the uh, character of the gospel comes from the person who secured it for us, Jesus. And Jesus is humble. Friends, Paul knew that humility was a decisive characteristic of his that the Ephesians should recognise. And the question is to us, are we humble? Do we really know what it is to lift others up at our own expense? Do we exhibit it on a daily basis? Do we even know genuine humility when we see it? I want to read something from uh, Jesus' words. And he says this in uh, uh, Luke chapter 22. And if you've got a Bible, definitely uh, uh, look at it with me if you can. And it says this, uh, a, dispute arung, um, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. These disciples are arguing as to who is the best disciple. Um, we all do that secretly, don't we? Wonder whether we are a better disciple, this sort of competitive nature. And Jesus says this in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. I love this idea of the youngest. The greatest of you, the oldest, the uh, uh, most revered, be like the youngest. And I don't know whether you've uh, encountered the sort of the young children of our fellowship, but, but there is a freedom and abandon and a uh, lack of self-consciousness, isn't there, often about them. You are to be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves and you are those who have stood by me in my trials. Um, and, and so he goes on. And so Jesus says, I am Lord of creation, but I am sat here serving you. And, and you should know something of Jesus' story. You should know uh, the different ways that uh, Jesus has served his people. You know, he served them food. He washed their feet. Um, and ultimately, he would die humiliatingly on a cross outside the city at the hands of the Romans. He is the servant king. He is humility personified. And we, you and I, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to be like that. We are to live like that. This attitude, constant attitude of service and humility. So the question is, who are we helping? in a way that announces that we think that they are more important than we are. Who are we serving that is making explicit that we are humble and that our saviour is the servant king? The Holy Spirit brings power and Luke loves to focus on that and we certainly enjoy that 
um, in our readings um, and in these talks. But the Holy Spirit also comes alongside us and says, your value's not up for grabs. It's already established. Jesus died for you. Your Father loves you. The Holy Spirit, your friend, inhabits you. So you do not have to fight for worth in this world. You do not have to fight for credit. God sees all and values what you do. And when we are released from that, we are suddenly able to serve in a way that Jesus recognised as truly humble and servant-hearted. And so Paul, by um, arguing for his ministry, says, I am humble. And the question is, as you serve, are you humble? Do you do it out of reluctance? Do you do it out of obligation? Do you do it out of a sense of hope of recognition that others will applaud you and celebrate you and carry you on their uh, shoulders to uh, uh, um, sort of uh, general acclaim? And God says that shouldn't be what you're up to. And the Holy Spirit says you don't need to prove yourself. You're already loved, but you do need to serve. After sort of establishing his humility, Paul draws the attention to the fact that he has spoken um, widely on a range of subjects in a range of different venues. You know, he has proclaimed the full gospel, every uh, part of it, um, all the different ramifications. He has he is, uh, uh, explained um, elaborately all the ins and outs of what it means to be saved by Jesus and live as a follower of Jesus and he has done it in public where everyone can see and he's done it in private where you can have those intimate moments of questions and answers and, and cries for help and prayer. I wonder if you're familiar with the uh, author uh, Charles Dickens. Uh, he's an English guy and uh, he uh, uh, created some very famous uh, works and uh, you're, you're probably sort of familiar uh, with things like Oliver Twist, but it's, uh, many claim that his uh, masterpiece, the the, uh, the the book that he wrote that, that is above all the others is David Copperfield. Um, the, the actual title of the book is a lot longer. Um, and it's based largely on uh, Charles Dickens' own life. Um, and there's this wonderful story of this, uh, uh, this boy who sort of falls on hard times, um, but he is in many ways saved by struggling author. He is saved by Mr. Dick. And, and Charles Dickens seems to have invested himself also um, in David Copperfield and in Mr. Dick. He sort of put uh, different parts of his experience in both. And so we had this guy, Mr. Dick, and he's struggling to write uh, memoirs. He's struggling to pen uh, some great compositions. Um, and he's kind and gentle, but he has this fixation and he can't help it. And I just want to read you uh, some of it, if we've got time. And it says this in David uh, Copperfield. So this is Mr. Dick speaking to David Copperfield. You've been to school? Yes, sir, I answered, for a short time. Do you recollect the date, said Mr. Dick, looking earnestly at me and taking up his pen to note it down? Do you know the date when King Charles I had his head cut off? I said I believed it happened in the year 1649. 
Well, returned Mr. Dick, scratching his ear with his pen and looking dubiously at me. So the book said, but I don't see how that can be, because if it was so long ago, how could the people about him have made the mistake of putting some of the trouble out of his head after it was taken off and put into mine? I was very much surprised by the inquiry, but could give no information till this point. It's very strange, said Mr. Dick, with a despondent look again um, at his papers, and with his hand upon his hair again. But I never can get that quite right. I never can make that perfectly clear. But no matter, no matter, he said cheerfully, rousing himself. There's time enough. My compliments to Miss Trotwood. I am getting on very well indeed. I was going away when he directed my attention to the kite. What do you think of the kite, he said. I answered that it was a very beautiful one. I should think it must have been as much as seven feet high. I made it. We'll go and fly at you and I, said Mr. Dick. You see this? And he showed me it was covered with manuscripts, very closely and laboriously written, but so plainly that I looked along the lines. I thought I saw some allusions to King Charles I's head again and again in different places. There's plenty of strings, said Mr. Dick, and when it flies high, it takes the facts long away. And that's my manner of diffusing them. I don't know where they come down. It's according to circumstances and the wind and so forth, but I take my chance for that. His face was so very mild and pleasant, and had something so re uh, reverend in it, though it was hale and hearty, that I was not sure, but that he was having a good-humoured jest with me. So I laughed, and he laughed, and we parted the best friends possible and Mr Dick goes on to do a, uh, a wonderful job in the, the story of uh, David Coffield but he has this fixation and uh, with uh, Charles I's head um, and it's strange um, and it just it keeps reoccurring and, and this author uh, you know he's trying to work and then suddenly he keeps going back to it and he and you recognize he's obsessed with the head of uh, Charles I. And, and so what he does, he constructs this kite with the uh, um, references to it on it. And, it. and it's like a mechanism of freedom. And, and, and suddenly Mr. Dick, when he flies the kite, feels a freedom from this bizarre obsession that he can't explain. It's amazing how many Christians seem to be like Mr. Dick. They have their own uh, weird preoccupations. They... Uh, have things that they are obsessed with at the exclusion of everything else. And it's something that they keep coming back to whenever you talk to them. So some can love the end time, uh, uh, um, sort of end times and the apocalypse and everything is about that. Some love worship and that is the uh, centre of their faith. And other love uh, practical charity, you know, and it's all about giving out um, and uh, uh, um, making a practical difference in other people's lives and, and others they like theology and thought and Bible study and uh, uh, people uh, get immersed in these things and even if you bring up something completely different they will bring it back to this subject and they are harassed by an obsession and Paul said I was not like that I taught the full gospel in a variety of different ways. I'm not someone that has an um, axe to grind on one particular subject. I am not all about COVID-19 or Brexit. I am someone uh, uh, that uh, knows the, the full range and implications of the gospel and I teach it all. You know, I'm not small-minded and uh, um, we are, as Christians, to be broad in our intake of Christianity. Our passions about this 
should be all encompassing. We should be able to embrace the many different aspects rather than uh, uh, focus on one or two. I wonder what your uh, severed head is. I wonder what your Charles I's head is. What you are drawn again and again back to rather than the full impression of the gospel. I wonder if you've got your favourite bits of the Bible that you read again and again and exclude the rest. Because Paul says, I taught the whole thing. And the implication is that we are to enjoy the whole thing. It's great to love theology, but sometimes we need to embrace the worship. It is great to love uh, the worship, but sometimes we need to be practical. It's great to be practical, uh, uh, but sometimes we need to love uh, uh, the theory behind the Bible as well and the truths that they bring. And so this morning, Paul challenges us to explore the aspects of the faith we're unfamiliar with with the bits of the Bible that perhaps we are less inclined to look at. If uh, you love practical uh, uh, outworkings of Christianity or you love worship, um, I wonder uh, how many of the books behind me you've read. I wonder how many uh, books uh, that articulate the fullness of the gospel that gives you a, uh, a better understanding of what Jesus has done for you that you have read and vice versa if your shelves are full of books I wonder how much worship you take in and enjoy and I wonder how many of us who love being surrounded by the church go out and serve the community at large and, and Paul challenges us to be wiser and more mature and fuller Christians rather than obsessed with single aspects and uh, lastly in his defence Paul is explicit in the fact that he loves the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, I'm going to follow the Holy Spirit wherever it takes. The Holy Spirit is promising grief, but I'm going to follow him anyway. And Paul cherishes his relationship with God so much that he's willing to embrace the imprisonment and hardship that is inevitable. All he wants to do is run the race that Jesus has got set out for him. For Paul, the race Jesus has given him uh, was the proclamation of the gospel. He was a preacher and teacher and he was to go around the Roman Empire and tell anyone that listened, and even those that don't, that uh, Jesus loves them, that he died for them uh, and that they can made, be made new again and that they are to live uh, uh, lives led by the Spirit um, after that. And, and he, Paul does it with an energy and focus that you can't criticise. He has a passion that causes him to face every imaginable physical difficulty in being sort of shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned, but he does it anyway. And it's really awe-inspiring, the, the, the focus by which that he will chase the path down that Jesus has set aside for him. And, and this was the last credential of his ministry that, Jesus, uh, that Paul uh, uh, explains here. And the same should be for us too, as well as being humble, as well as being broad in our understanding 